Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney. Joining me today is just one other panelist. Uh, as usual, it's Troy. Troy Goodfellow, welcome to the show. It is great to be back, tired from all the conferences this month, but they've stopped. And now I get to answer wonderful questions from our wonderful listeners. Yay! You mentioned the Kermit arms flailing. Yeah, uh, we were supposed to get a show together for last week as well, but unfortunately I was traveling and I had an unexpected flight delay, and because Troy was flying out the next morning, it was really ships passing and we weren't quite able to land a show. Uh, this is sort of peak conference and travel scene, uh, season for both of us, and uh, it's been it's been really tough keeping the lights on, to be quite honest. And uh, I think we're almost out of the woods, uh, but, you know, knock on wood. I think so. I mean, the fall, I don't have any major travel planned, and I'll give you a lots of advance notice. And there's a lot of neat things coming out this fall for us to talk about. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to be an exciting fall. It's been a pretty good year, as a matter of fact. It has. Uh, anyway, so to lead off, we're going. today is a question and answer show. Uh, we've got so many questions, and to judge from history, uh, we're not going to get to very many of them, uh, because we tend to just you know suck all the marrow from each question. Uh, so I will start with something that I think is simple. We're going to start with something that should be Sim- simple. Simple's good. Uh, this is from... Well, I don't know. I don't know how to say this. Uh, SLPLS, uh, Skilpels, uh, on, on the uh, Idle Thumbs forums. Uh, he submits the following question to the panel. It is often said that the military technology of World War II makes it an especially good conflict to model in strategy games, yet much of that technology was also present in the Spanish Civil War, but that's a conflict that is rarely represented in games, in both the digital and tabletop space. Why do you think there is less interest in the Spanish Civil War? Uh, a couple of reasons. First, the Americans weren't involved. Uh, the International Brigade had played a yeah, pretty but there, large but, role. But it wasn't the United States. It was an International Brigade part of uh, a company. So it wasn't like the United States, wasn't like the Marines charging in. So that's, so that's, so that's an important thing. You have to, there was going to be a natural bias to, especially in modern uh, stuff, modern warfare, to things that the United States was involved in because that's where a lot of the games come from. Uh, but also, there are, there are only two sides. There's really the Republicans and the Nationalists. And what makes the Spanish Civil War interesting to a lot of people isn't the war itself, which is isn't a war about you know even though there's a technology, state relatively same technology as World War II, you don't have the sweeping tank movements, you don't have a blitzkrieg, you don't have you know mass bomber formations. You have some stuff going on. It largely is a very traditional civil war insurgency type thing. You have armies moving, you have some guerrilla stuff in the background, uh, and you have two sides. Uh, there's not a lot of, although really interesting stuff for most people is the meta is is the meta game of the Spanish Civil War. It is uh, fascist and communist and freedom fighting support that makes it, for me, the Spanish Civil War really interesting. Otherwise, it's just one more civil war in a era where there are quite a few civil wars and battles and coups. Yeah, you know, I think it is interesting that, like, the Spanish Civil War was sort of treated by both uh, Stalin and Hitler as kind of a test bed uh, for various ideas and, and new weapon systems. Uh, Hitler made better use of the Spanish Civil War than, than Stalin obviously did. Uh, the, the communist intervention in the war was a, a, a bit of a shit show, uh, frankly. Mm-hmm. But I, I think that is also another reason why the Spanish Civil War tends not to get its due. Um, in addition to there being an awful lot of siege warfare in that war and a lot of static fronts for extended periods where there's just not a lot of stuff to model. Uh, the, the other problem is that I think like a lot of civil wars, uh, they tend not to be... 
Civil Wars tend not to feature the most pro-level warfare you're yeah. going to find. Like, if you were to make a game, and it's an unfortunate event happening right now, but if you were to make a game about, say, events in Syria right now, you would be dealing with a lot of very confusing factions, many of which... Um, you know, are paramilitary that are very difficult to turn into traditional military units. And uh, those those tend to be sort of frustrating conflicts to play through because you're, you're sort of fighting with, um, you know, sort of difficult resources to use. I, I think if you if you look at um, the Operation Art of War, whenever they try to do like... Um, there's a lot of scenarios that sort of explore third world conflict and civil war yeah. conflict and such like that. And you end up sort of... Um, because of the haphazard technology training doctrine, it ends up just feeling really uh, annoying trying to get these units to do the things you're used to doing in a traditional war game, right? Like, you know, an armored spearhead blowing through the line. Well, if your tankers are driving crap tanks and they're poorly trained, that's never going to happen. So it kind of feels like you're bashing each other with like rocks and sticks. And so I think that's that's the other obstacle you you tend to run into. And you know, just, despite like the high profile intervention of like the Condor Legion, for instance, uh, a, a lot of the Spanish Civil War I think did feature sort of those sort of those same issues of two of of two armies sort of coming to grips with each other uh, that that maybe weren't quite ready for prime time and. When you got World War II right there, uh, using sort of the same technology and doctrine, uh, much f further advanced and more interesting terrain. Uh, yeah, I think that's probably that's probably a big part of it. Uh, but I, I think it's, it's ripe, ripe terrain for like a coalition like political game. I think that could be really interesting. On the plus side, though, uh, our friend Tom Check insists that if you're going to learn one of the Hearts of Iron games, your best start your best off starting with a Spanish Civil War scenario, because you do have a. It's focused, it's small, you get to learn all the movements and the political stuff uh, in a relatively contained theater that doesn't have a huge risk of spilling over into something else. So, All right, next question, Troy. Next question from my uh, ask, uh, which I use quite a bit. We will go with uh, no name here. So can you think of any computer game strategy titles that involve reading? as in the chess or go sense. In other words, explicitly working out the various alternatives, three moves ahead, to then decide where you are going to play. And if not, why do you think this is the case? Can you run the first part of the question? Because what are we yeah. confining this discussion to? Uh, computer game strategy titles that are about reading in the chess or go sense. So I okay. think the questioner is asking where uh, there are where you are anticipating your moves and the moves of your yeah. opponent. Okay, so I mean the 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 game that what I what I go to immediately honestly is um, RTS play. Uh, high level RTS is is really about inference uh, more more than anything else. And so if you look at like once you're once you're like playing StarCraft beyond just the purely mechanical level where where you're where you're talking, and this goes for a lot of RTSs. Mm -hmm. Once you once you're beyond that you know, struggling with the controls level and you can play competently and you can sort of execute on basic game ideas. What that game tends to turn into is really a lot of anticipation and reading. Uh, it's, it's a bit of detective work. You have to, you know, you have to keep your scouts out and you see something and 
depending on like the moment when you see something and where you locate it and how much time has lapsed in the match, uh, you're supposed to actually key off of a, a, a lot of things like that. That's, that's kind of one of the things, uh, you know, sort of a pillar of, of the genre uh, at any sort of serious level. Uh, I think it's harder. I think it's harder in like RTSs than it is in chess because chess you can just sit there and, and study the board. You can, you know, you have all the time you need to think three moves ahead. Um, RTSs is like trying to hop onto a moving train, and it's really hard to acquire those skills where, uh, you know, where where you'll be able to to make good reads off a situation because it's so fluid. But I think that's that's where I go right away. Is is I think that 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 aspect of reading, uh, while, while different than like Go or chess, is is very very much part of that genre. Well, the big difference is that you know in games like Go and chess, you have perfect information. Mm-hmm. And it's hard to really anticipate and move too far and plan too many moves ahead if you don't have perfect information. I mean, even in your own example, you have to have a decide to scout out. To send a scout out to realize, to see what the other person is doing and then anticipate based on what you see, which might not be the entire picture, but it's going to be something. So you're, going to, so you're working from partial information. Um, so a lot of, I mean, in your RTS example, I mean, I would argue that's not quite reading as much as reacting. It is, they have a plan, how do I react to that? Instead of, this is what this person is going to do, and they're planning, and then you read the board and develop your strategy at the same time, um, in the chess or go sense. Now, there are very few abstract strategy games, and I think that's part of the problem. That many of our strategy games now in the computer world are so built into, they're built into worlds, um, they're not built into, they're built into themes. Um, and the, one of those themes is almost always going to be, you know, pr- pr- protecting your information and hiding what you're doing, uh, because that's an important part. If you have a realistic type theme, no one's going to say, hey, here are my men over here. This doesn't fit with the theme. Um, more abstract strategy titles like, you know, Blood, Grain, and Steel uh, or might be something like that. That's a game uh, from a couple of years ago, which is kind of like, chess only with unit building and territorial control uh so if you want something with more of a theme on the computer that feels a bit like chess and does involve um some planning based on what the map looks like and what units are being constructed uh that might be your best example but as far as classic major strategy games um i mean even the eu games are a bit like that because you do have you do have not perfect information you have very good information on everyone around you and often, you know, where their armies are or where they're expanding. Uh, but that's a game where your plans are often upset from one month to the next. So, Yeah, to the other part of the question, why do you think there isn't more of that, that, sort, of, uh, that, that sort of chess set up in, in games? Why do you see more games designed that way? I think people just... I, people, I think abstract games are something people don't want in their computer. I think it's more. I think it's a marketing thing. It is uh, the idea that I, I do believe this is an issue of knowledge and abstraction. Uh, it is their game. They're called video games for a reason. I often say people want to see things move in a pretty way and have uh, meaning attached to them. That's not all from their own brain. Uh, they want the game to take them someplace special. Um, so if, like me, you think this is really connected to the lack of abstraction uh, in strategy game in computer strategy games then um, that's probably why. Now, you think this is not necessarily tied to abstractions. You might have a different explanation. No, I, I, think I, I tend to agree with that. I, I think the other, the, the other part of it is that 
I, I kind of feel like one of the one of the nice things you can do on computer is you can manage information so neatly and so effortlessly that it, I think it just becomes kind of a blind spot where I think it's very hard to create a game that's going to hold up over playthrough after playthrough when everything is just sort of out there for you to see. That, that, that's kind of tricky. That's, that's difficult. Yeah. It's a lot easier to leave the player a little bit in the dark. And that way, you know, you're kind of the, you know, the, the wizard, of, you know, the guy behind the curtain. Um, and it takes the player a little longer to sort of sort of see through that. I think that's that's part of what, what what's going on. Uh, moving on from that, let's see. Okay, so this is a good one. Uh, T. Burton on the Idle Thumbs forums asks, "What are your feelings on the disembodied historical force or generic commander that the player usually embodies in strategy games? Do you think we need to see more strategy games that put the player in a more realistic, specific, and grounded role, like Captain Olimar in Pikmin or something similar? That's a great question, and it's something I've thought about quite a bit. I mean, I'm constantly thought thinking of a piece that uh, my friend at the University of Maryland, Matt Kirschenbaum, uh, wrote on uh, representation in strategy games, it's something he's really into, the idea of how do games trans transmit information, what do the pieces represent, how do we portray that. And he wrote a piece asking, you know, who is the player in a war game? I mean, you're not Napoleon, because Napoleon's often the unit on the board, but you're playing Napoleon's role. So who is the player? You are this disembodied historical force that controls historical things, though trying to tell you, you know, you're Napoleon trying to win World War, win Waterloo, but you're not Napoleon because Napoleon's down there. And if he dies, I don't die. So there is this, so it is kind of a weird thing we have in games that you aren't necessarily um, something that you are beyond, you are beyond history, you are above history. There are a few exceptions in that, you know, uh, uh, Crusader Kings, you are something, you're, you're a bloodline, but at least it's something legitimate, it's something finite, it's something tight. Uh, Sim City, you're a mayor uh, who can get voted out of office. So you're, you're, in, in, you're an immortal mayor, but there is a, 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 a finishing point. I think um, I would love to see more games put you really in somebody's place and give you a specific role, uh, a strategy game where you are to use historical examples, which you know I know best, uh, something like you are, you. I mean the the take command games. You yep. are a you are a commander. You are in a space. You do have something you need to do. Now you get more disembodied the higher up the chain you get because you're responsible for more. And I think that actually does reflect you know the nature of command. Um, but the Pikmin game is a great example. That's an amazing little RTS that we should really do a show on. I think, um, and how it gets the player involved in taking meaning and ownership of these little creatures, um, playing a specific role in a specific part. Um, yeah, this is just such a good question. Yeah, I think I, I tend to like those games. I'm like I tend to really like games that limit the pl place limits on the player yeah. in some fashion. Interesting limits. Like yeah. I like if you're playing, uh, you know, if, if you're playing the Take Command series, for instance, as like a divisional commander, uh, your vision radius isn't that big. Uh, you're kind of tied to wherever your commander is standing mm -hmm. at the time, uh, so you, you can't just sort of survey the battlefield from high altitude. Though you get a pretty good view no matter what. I think they could be even bolder with that. Um, but but I do like I do love this 
I, I do love this idea of you being uh, dependent on you know just sort of your physical location, your accessibility to messengers, yeah. uh, that sort of thing. It lets you it lets you struggle with things beyond just like the usual thing, usual like tactical issues of like positioning, uh, terrain, that kind of thing. It sort of gives you an organizational and personal challenge uh, to confront. I think. You know, do we need to see more strategy games that put the player in a more realistic and grounded role? Uh, yeah, I would I would like that because I think there's things there's possibilities that open up that we we can't get to just yet. Like, I think there's I w- I would like to see that sort of more grounded roles because I think there's there's possibilities there that that could be really exciting that we just can't to we can't get to yet. Like, if you're making a game about well, take World War Two, right? If you're making a game like a Hearts of Iron style game about like policy and stuff like that, uh, if you're the UK, you, you can you can follow this this fairly rational policy. You know the war is coming. Uh, you know you just start arming. You know the moment the clock starts in the early 30s, you just start arming yourself to the teeth. You're ready to go. Uh, you you are speeding up to try to confront Germany. Great. And that's that's how these games, these most of these games tend to function. They let you play very rationally. That let you play play without a lot of uh, realistic limitations. But what, one of the things that always fascinates me is that as you know, as you, as you read as you read more history and you start like getting into more like organizational analysis, right? Um, you know how how are decisions actually made? How are how are policies the product of negotiation and uh, contingent on all these domestic factors? That's hard stuff to bring to life, but I think. You know that's the sort of stuff that I think could be really interesting because we've commanded armies a million times before. We've led nations a million times yeah. before. What would be really interesting is finding yourself in a situation where you've got a really fractious cabinet, a weak governing coalition, and uh, you know a bad personal relationship with uh, you know you know with your with your you know minister of war or something like that. That could be really interesting. Uh, and it opens up an entire field of other things that be cur- could be turned into strategy games. Uh, because I think if you were able to start systematizing all those all those other factors that a, a most real decision makers have to struggle with, I think you could absolutely get something very different and very exciting. Um, so I, I kind of I, I, that's kind of my dream scenario for for where we go with a direction like this. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't want this answer to go on too long. This is part of a problem on these shows, uh, but. I think so many strategy games, uh, especially ones set in history or sci-fi, they appeal to very large, grand power fantasies. Um, you want to be the emperor of something. Um, not realize there's so much fertile ground at the lower levels to give interesting challenges. Mm-hmm. If we want to get back to, um, you know, really solid, fun systems type stuff. I think the real innovations and the real fun stuff is going to be in the smaller world type things, dealing with challenges from above and below and beyond with, um, you know, some really hard, fast limits on what the player is capable of. And that's, I think, as the question implies or suggests, a lot of that is going to be putting the player in a very specific role because you need to justify that in some reason because players have been trained to want to run the universe, I believe the next question is yours. The next question is mine. Uh, oh, this is uh, not going to be an easy one. 
Uh, we finally have lots of XCOM and Master of Magic remakes slash derivatives coming out. Do you feel the itch is being scratched? Do you think there are still aspects of 90s classics beyond nostalgia that have yet to resurface in a modern game? No, let the dead stay buried. Um, you know, I, I think if, if you go back and listen to me and Paul Dean just tear in to, uh, you know, the Master of Orion successors, uh, I, you know, and when we look back at, like, Master of Magic, for instance, I, I think they're... I, I think there's there's a lot of rose tinted glasses type stuff happening when we remember those games rather than go back and actually play them. They are games that inspire a great many things and a great many ideas, uh, but I think the original works. A lot of the magic w- was was kind of about context and timing and you know where 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 games were at at the time mm-hmm. and i and i feel like by keep going back by by keep pretending that these like that the genre like needs to keep returning to these foundational works is i i think increasingly silly uh i i think there's there's other directions to go more more exciting directions to go i honestly feel like the itch is never going to feel scratched because it's never going to be like it's never going to feel that way again you're never going to have like you know it, it's never going to be what was it 93 when xcom came yeah. out 94 yeah yeah, you, you're never you're never going to have that sort of exciting moment where, you know, this revolutionary strategy game pops on the scene, and you know that there's not a lot of other games for you to play, and you know you need the you need the right rig to run it. Uh, it's it, it's just so many things tie up to make those those games special uh, that that I that I think it, it's increasingly perilous to keep acting as if. Uh, you know we have we we need to keep going back to those particular examples uh to learn something yeah i agree i mean it's i mean xenonauts came out and cancer was still not cured uh so it, there's only so much you can get from retelling the past xenonauts is great and it's fun it's a very very faithful xcom type game so we have it and it's that's great and we're just going to be getting a lot more XCOM-type games. Not because everyone loves the original XCOM, but because the Firaxis XCOM was such a huge, huge success. And that's what's going to be leading from there. Um, we have new Master of Magic-type games, you know, Warlock and um, the Elemental games, those types of things. Not, not really Master of Magic, but they sketch, scratch, try to scratch, scratch, scratch that itch. But, yeah, you, 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 it will never be the first time. Um, games have evolved in many significant and important ways. There's re- I'm not going to say there's nothing to be learned from games from the 90s, because there's things to be learned from some of those games from the 90s and the early 2000s. I mean, there are things to learn from imperialism. But I don't think there's anything left to learn uh, from Master of Magic, which is you know just wizards in civilization. We've seen many variations on that since. There's nothing to be learned from XCOM or the first civilization or the first Sim City, or Populous, those lessons have been learned. There are a few games here and there, I think, that have become like dead branches on the tree of life of game history uh, that can be exploited. But as far as the really big nostalgic titles that everyone remembers playing in high school with all of their other friends, no, I mean, that, that, that's ground that's been tilled. Um, I, I have no interest in the new Wing Commander. I have very little interest in the new Wasteland. Uh, because they are just 
because they're trading on their nostalgia. I'm not saying they're not going to be good games. They'll probably be amazing games. But they're just not something I, in the new elite. They're just not something that is going to grab me based purely on the name anymore. Um, there's, I'm too old for that, I guess. And there's too many amazing new things coming out for me to, you know, always say, well, I, what I really need is a new. I do need a new imperialism. But aside from that. Well, and a lot of times it's, do you really need a new one or do you just need one that's available and will run on any modern machine? That's the, that's the other well, thing. Yes, a lot of yes. times it's like, no, I don't. I just don't want to have to, like, you know, find my old floppy disks and find a way to get them onto my hard drive or something like that. Right. Um, I, I think, you know, I, I, I'm with you. Uh, I, I'm with you as far as, like, there's there's other games on the evolutionary tree that were never explored. And and that, I think, is... is sacrifice. A, that's a good example. Sacrifice. Uh, sacrifice. Um, you know, Bruce has brought it up, and I actually toy around with doing a show on it at some point. Mm-hmm. Uh, Gorky Seventeen. Oh, uh, yeah. Kind of an oddly, a weird little like atmospheric, puzzly, tactical horror game. Um, it's a weird game, but but yeah. interesting and different. Like clearly, like a descendant of XCOM in some ways, but just in a completely different and bizarre direction. I think this is this is I think what bothers me a little bit about the constant returning to these to these seminal works is like. If you look at like a lot of a lot of the most interesting things out there tend to be the cult hits. Everybody like the games that everybody went and played, the 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 books that everybody read, the movies that everybody saw and celebrates as a masterpiece, uh, the the games that everybody loves. There's only so much you're going to be able to get out of that because yep. one, the original work is so strong, uh, but but two, it's it, it's so familiar. Right. Uh, I I feel it's 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 so much more fruitful to sort of find the things that maybe like went off a little half cocked or or just you know hit the market at the wrong time or never found the audience they deserved and and go and do something with that riff on that uh be, because we absolutely don't need uh more interpretations of you know the these 20 year old uh these these 20 year old dishes uh, i will say true i think it's a little different with space games uh at least a yeah. little bit it, because that's a genre that was basically you know somebody just put a pillow over its face after free space too um and ironically i think it was chris roberts who who, who kind of helped smother it uh, with the freelancer Starlancer uh, debacle, yeah. But I, I, I am sort of more interested in those games because this is that's a case of an entire genre trying to be brought back from the dead, um, right? And the new elite looks really impressive. I do have concerns about Star Citizen uh, and how blatantly it trades on nostalgia and um, the collective goodwill of its audience. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable with how. Nakedly, it puts a price tag on your enthusiasm. Yeah, there will be business school articles written about this one, I think. And possibly but, legal articles when all said and done. And maybe some game articles, but we'll see how long yeah. it lasts. Okay, so our buddy Hexgrid asks, uh, There's been plenty of mention of scope on and off. Uh, see Bruce's theory that the mid-1990s produced lots of good games, in part because of technical limits of scope and complexity. Uh, discussions of single uh, scenario games versus whole conflict games. But I'm not sure there's ever been a direct discussion of where the sweet spots of scope uh, lie and and why they lie there. Uh, so what... I think this this maybe ties to some of the things we brought up with uh, with with T Burton's question about mm. where you sort of locate the player, but yeah, what do, what 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 is do you have any like what are the rules of scoping? I don't know. It's a, it's a classic Goldilocks problem, right? Yep. 
I mean, it's, you know what when you when you know what when you see it. Yeah, it's too hot, too cold, or just right. Um, and I mean, Bruce, we should have had Bruce on the show to answer. We can probably ask him to answer this question and come into the forum and answer it. Um, and but I think it comes down to just the basic question of limits and imposing limits. And it's so easy for designers, and I see this um, in the work that I do and the consulting I do. Uh, and also the work at Paradox, that, you know, when the only limit is your imagination, because there are no technical limits, and there are no real UI, well, there are UI limits in games, but we have Paradoxes blow right through UI limits, uh, then you can pretty much model whatever you want. You can just throw in another number, you can throw in another variable, which is why so much of this stuff has to be done I think and thought of before you start programming. I think of the Shenandoah guys um, and their uh, iPad war games, uh, which I love quite a bit. Bulge and Road to Moscow and uh, uh, War in the Desert or Africa Corps or whatever it's called. I always forget. And, I mean, they prototype that as a board game first because they have a limitation. There's only so much you can do uh, on an iPad. There's only so much information you can convey and, put, and do interestingly. So their designs are really, really tight because they have that limitation. Um, and how do they work with limitation? Well, they start with a board game model. Uh, you can't do that with every game, but I think it's actually quite helpful, and it would be helpful for designers to think about um, the potential in you know limiting scope and complexity and what you can get create creative wise out of that uh it's the whole just throwing more paint at an artist is not going to make him a better artist uh so you have to i I think but as far as asking for the sweets plot lies i mean i would think historically i would think the sweet spot would be somewhere in the early 90s to mid 2000s that was where you had games that had that did strategy games that did have to face serious limits because you had the arms race um, for computer hardware and not everyone could upgrade and so you had to impose something as simple as, as, as a unit cap. I mean, here's a very simple Age of Empires. The first had a unit cap. You couldn't just build units to the end of time. So you act, there actually was a very tight technical little sub game over how many citizens you could actually build and then how many of what units you're going to be build, going to build and then which ones you should kill on your own so you could replace them with something better uh, and whether the cost would still be there when the time came. Uh, the, the mere, that was a technical limitation. They just could not have you know, that many units running around. So a very hard unit cap. So a lot of the screenshots promoting the game were a total, total freaking lie because they had like hundreds and hundreds of units fighting each other in battles. I was so upset that I could never do that because uh, everything was just so modeled perfectly in the screenshots. My first encounter with bull shots, I think. You know, screenshots that lie to you for marketing purposes. Um, so historically, I think that was kind of the, the point when um, you could have really interesting gameplay and design decisions based on very simple, small technical limits, like a unit cap. I mean, that's just such an absurdly minor example. But you can see how that plays out through the entire game as to what you build, what you can build, how you use the soldiers you have. This could be cannon fodder you'll send forward. Or so they'll get killed, or do you want to kill them now? And how many citizens do you build? And the whole economy tied into that just so tightly. Um, 
So yeah, as far as why why the why there are sweet spots, I mean that's I don't think there are any sweet spots anymore for this. I think all limitations now come from intentional design. Unity of command. There's a great great example. It has a limited purpose, a limited goal, and so the scope is limited, and it's a beautiful, brilliant game. Um, from what I've seen of John Schaefer's At the Gates. It's going to be similar, though the design keeps changing every week. So, John, get that shit sorted out. Um, I really like games that we were, we were talking about limits today, and I, th- I think I'm really calling for more limits. Yeah, you know, whenever you're talking about scope at this point, it, yeah, it really does come down to intent. Uh, it comes down to how, how good a handle do the developers have on the thing they're actually making. And I think... What I think you tend to see a lot more is um, too like the scope being too broad. Yeah. Uh, there's too much stuff, and uh, you know I think this is one of the reasons why I end up bashing the 4X uh, genre so much. And I, I think there's something about space too, because like bring up Star Citizen again. Talk about a game that just like just keep throwing one promise after another at things. Like whenever space comes into it, it's like the game has to be as big as the entire universe. No. No, it doesn't. It, it, mm. it, it really doesn't. Like, you know, <laughs> like like Star Trek suggests this entire, like, rich, exciting universe beyond the confines of the Enterprise, but doesn't actually go around. Like, there's no episode where Kirk is, like, going around counting planets, you know, and what's <laughs> this one about? Like that, like, but that's how we make, that's how we make 4X games. That's how we make space games, right? Like, oh, man, we need, we need that part where you're just sort of flying around, just counting all the stars and planets. That sure will be exciting. <laughs> um, I, beyond that, so I, so I think yeah, the, the 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 main evil I see is just in strategy games, uh, in particularly space games, the, this idea that you just you just need to give players more and more stuff. It sort of turns into fan service, and fan service is a real bad idea uh, in in a strategy game. Uh, because ultimately, this is about giving people problems that they can both analyze and then solve. And I'm going to turn, so turn this question around on you, just for yeah. a moment. When you think of a game that you wish the scope was bigger, the scope was just too small, and the they didn't try, they didn't give you enough. It was a decent design, but the scope was too small. Because we don't see a lot of games. Thought I mean, I'm a bit banished is the only one that comes to my mind. But you didn't play. We had a podcast on uh, in the spring with uh, Rowan right. and Greg and Cassandra. Um, that's the only game that I can think of recently that I, said, I just thought, wow, these guys have a good game, but there's just not enough of it. Yeah, I, I am. I am kind of uh, kind of coming up blank. To, uh, well, well, it's something to think about, though, right? Actually, okay. I think maybe I do have one. Endless space. Okay, which which was not endless. It it was not. It was it was a big game. It was a big space 4x, and it certainly felt expansive. Right. But there wasn't enough stuff inside of it. I don't think not not at release. Now I've heard it changed quite a bit with some expansions. I've also heard some expansions just like straight up broke things. I don't know. But I'm going by the game I actually reviewed the the the, the game it was at launch before all the expansions, and space could be endless, but it could also be very empty. Um, right. Faction distinctions were not terribly uh interesting uh i don't think the 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 tech tree 
was uh, was again large, but but kind of uh, poorly defined. I don't think it. I, I don't think they had the best model for how technology was. New technology was researched. It was kind of um, it was really counterintuitive and, and kind of frustrating. And so my, my my feeling was this was a game. It was a case of a game that had a very pure mission. Right, it was like it's going to be a space forex about building your space empire, expanding it, and going kicking ass. That's what this game is going to be about, and so that's and that's what it was. It succeeded at that pretty admirably. But the problem is, I discovered that there were all these all these little things that that weren't in the game that I kind of resented them not being there. You know, okay. inter- interesting races. Um, you know, I- exciting. Uh, you know, technologies. Um, you know, a, a well realized. Uh, you know, tech system. All those things. Oh, you're, in the you're game. lying. Sci-fi games never have interesting tech systems. Uh, come on, I wasn't. Well, I was sorry. Had good tech lore, and it's basically reskin Civ in some ways. But you can do the blind research, which is kind of sure. cool. Yeah. So yeah, uh, so there, there's two examples. I just think it's an interesting question to think about because to think about games that are just limit themselves by being too big, we should also think about games that limit themselves by being too small. We're often, you know, really hard on the games. Like, oh wow, this is. You're just trying to do too much. Um, sometimes designers should... I mean, it's good to start small, but if you're onto something, it's okay to push yourself just a bit. Yeah. I um, Just one one last thing on that. I just mm-hmm. I, I feel like a, a decent rule of thumb is like you do need... you. It does help sort of to consider what role the player is actually playing like yes. like what imaginary figure is is this person is is this person inhabiting here? And then ask yourself you know, does this design feature, is this something that a person in this role should actually be bothering about? And this is this is why I tend to hate ship design, right? And right. it's not just in space games. Uh, there, you know, there's a lot of, like, naval war ship design I see in, like, grand strategy games. Like, you know... Um, you know, God rest its soul, there was that, uh, there, there was that mod that Paradox was, was working on. Um, God, what was what was it? Not Magnum Mundi. It was the one that was just recently... Uh, oh, uh, East versus West? Yeah, it was it was a really cool looking game. I know it was a I know it was an unfortunate situation for Paradox. I know you can't talk about it, but I can. Not, yeah, you and <laughs> uh, when when I saw it, I saw the game a couple times, and it, it seemed like there was some good stuff there. But but then they were like, but but then the, the designer was showing me like, and you can decide the loadout on your warship. And so he like pulls up this like Soviet destroyer or something and takes the uh, you know anti submarine missile system off and puts on an anti uh, you know air to surface missile system on. And I was looking, I was like, yeah, okay, but this game is about the entire Cold War played on a global scale, and I'm pretty sure that whether or not a single destroyer has an anti-sub missile or anti-missile yeah. uh, system i'm pretty sure that's not going to turn the balance of uh of the cold war and so I, th- I think it's helpful just to like ask yourself the person the player is supposed to be here or the or the yeah. the organization the player is supposed to be is the stuff you're asking the player to do is this something that they should actually be bothering with and i think sort of like you know it, it's it's sort of like a business school thing right where there are only so many people who should be reporting to an executive, and then you got to delegate. You really got to decide. Uh, you got, you got to decide what's going to be delegated or abstracted out of existence for the player, so that the player can actually focus on the decisions that should actually matter to them in that role. That to me is like successful scoping. That's a decent rule of thumb. It won't get you there. It won't get you totally there. But it's it's a decent it's a decent like framework to think about what you're asking the player to do. Great. So it's my turn to pick a question now. I think 
find something that's interesting. From we got quite a few questions this week, so I'm just so so happy. Now, this is one you're probably more qualified to answer than I am. I'm not sure I have an answer at all. Uh, I love the War of the Ring board game, which you do too, I think, right, Rob? Yes, it might be the greatest board game I own in my collection. Maybe the greatest board game ever. Who knows? Great. So can you think of any computer games that are similar in style, as in great fit of theme, narrative, and mechanics, strongly authored scenario, sensible scope, and level of abstraction, flexible enough to offer a few different strategies for both sides? This is from Alistair Clark, who submitted multiple questions. So, are there other perfect games on PC? <laughs> yeah, I could, that, um, that, that, that's a huge list of things that one game's got to fit. But is there any game, I guess, that you think is reminiscent of War of the Ring in its design, I guess? Because in theme, probably not. You're not going to find a, that theme and those mechanics plugged in right. But is there anything, anything else come to mind? Well, anything actually similar to War of the Ring? Not really. And this goes yeah. in part to something we've discussed before on the show, which is um, how PC games tend not to deal with events too often and, like, event cards. Like, there's, there's increasing emphasis on, like, card play. In, in strategy gaming on tabletop, right? Yeah. Uh, the legacy of like Twilight Struggle and games like that, Labyrinth, uh, where, where you get this idea of, of these cards being at once resources, but then also events that can happen in the world that change the state of the game. That's really cool, uh, but it's something that I, don't, I just don't see adopted uh, very much in PC games. They, they tend to sort of, um, you know, be sort of clockwork assemblies, which the player has limited abilities to to. Uh, to influence, and so I, I don't think you see too much that's directly like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I think if you're if you're talking about games that are really evocative of theme, then also have the correct scope, uh, but then also allow for a, a few really interesting different strategies. Uh, you know, I, I I turn to myth a lot. You know, a really mm-hmm. a, a strong like. Strong narrative component, uh, strongly authored scenarios, a lot of different strategies required to win. That goes yep. quadruply for multiplayer. Uh, yep. So I, I think that's that's a good example. Uh, Alpha Centauri is a you know you're just going to get me listing great games that use theme really well. You know if you ask this question, uh, but is in terms of games that like offer really direct parallel to War of the Ring, I can't really think of any. Well, there you go. Sorry, Alistair. <laughs> Uh, okay. Let's see here. Um, okay. Here's, here is a fun question from, uh, Valorian and Daimion. Is he a what wizard? Is, pardon? Is he a wizard? Sounds like it. I can only assume. Well, it's the idle th- thumbs for him, so probably a wizard. Um, okay. Anyway, this, this is just, this is just a fun one. Uh, what is the historical movie that you get that gets you the most angry about mistakes. And on the same note, oh. is there also a movie that you know is really wrong, but you can't help but enjoy it despite everything? Oh, yeah. I have an easy answer to this. The, 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 the Patriot with Mel Gibson. You worst. actually enjoy that? No. That, that, that's, that's the one I hate. That's the okay, one with the most yes, mistakes. That was going to be my pick, too. Okay, let's just, let's, let's just ab- go to town. Let's go to the absolute fucking shit show. Yeah, South Carolina planter who doesn't have slaves, but he's rich and the most powerful guys in the state. Doesn't have slaves, colony, but has a ton of free head, black people who just wandering around his plantation. Out. Yeah, and they yeah. just love him. The kids never age through the entire thing. Uh, they invent, you know, uh, British atrocities. They try to turn. I mean, he's based on. Tarleton. Um, 
Pardon? The, the oh, villain's the, based on Tarleton. Yes, but the hero is based on uh, Swamp Fox, uh, Marion, <laughs> Francis Marion. Yes. Who was, you know, a great leader, but not really, but also kind of a hard-ass asshole, you know, who was not kind to black people, because why would he be? He was in the colonial south. Um, and they, have, they turned Tarleton, Tarleton character, this huge, you know, terrorist, more or less. Uh, and it is... It is it is filmed poorly, but I'm, I'm fine with historical mistakes in a movie because I'll go into my example here in a bit. My thing is it doesn't have to be accurate. Accuracy is really such a small thing for historical movies. I really don't care if it's accurate, as long as it's true. Does it have something true to say about the time, about the people, about the period? There is nothing the Patriot has to say beyond yay America. That's it. It's got no message. It's got no even something as bloated and in term and interminable as you know dances with wolves has something it's trying to say. The patriot has nothing to say, so I can just I'm not going to be one of those rivet counters. Oh, they didn't have lead soldiers that you could melt down into bullets back then. That is an actual problem that people have pointed out. It's just a piece of crap. It is a movie that makes me angry every time I see it. And so I, I have hate-watched it a couple of times. First movies that are... Do you have anything to add to that? Because um, I, 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 could, I could go to town, but... Yeah, there's there, there's so much that's that's loathsome about that movie. Uh, you know, the, the fact that... It, 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 drives, it drives me a bit insane to see the British... It's it's it sort of it, it embraces all these bullshit myths about uh, the 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 American Revolution and the British Army too. Like ah, uh, the Americans were crafty and didn't fight in the European style and fired from the woods and used irregulars. And the British didn't know what to do about it because they're all a bunch of posh dudes but, but wandering around in feathers. And this is in the South where the Tories were a huge part. The Tory women were a huge part of the British strategy. Yeah. Well, and also, I mean. You know, no the the British were the British were actually really really competent, uh, and if you say this about the British Army, they tended to ad- adapt really quickly uh, to to warfare wherever they were fighting it. You know, like I mean, yeah, you do have cases of you know the the redcoats sort of marching headlong uh, into you know toward tree lines and getting just butchered by colonials, but that that actually kind of stops happening once you get you know guys like Cornwallis and uh, you know leaders like Ferguson. Uh, you know, into the war. I mean, the, you know, if the if the Brits couldn't have fought a Bush war, they wouldn't have had the empire they did. I mean, it's, uh, I mean so much that just comes out of Lexington and Concord. One encounter becomes the entire story. Yeah, they're marching down a road. They get shot from the woods. Oh well, clearly this is the problem. Yeah, so it's just it, it, that that just drives me a bit a bit batshit. Um, and yeah, it, it's, it's 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 really it's a really vicious and ugly movie. Uh, you know, it's it's like it, it it shies away from every important historical truth that that actually exists, and then embraces you know all you know it, it embraces or exaggerates every every historical myth it possibly can. Uh, so yeah, it's just a, just an utterly loathsome film. As far as movies I like that are really wrong is Spartacus. Spartacus gets nothing right, really, except there was a guy named Spartacus who led a revolution. That's pretty much the only thing it gets right. It was put down by a guy named, named Crassus. Now, they get some of the events out of order. It's not quite clear who Spartacus really was based on uh, the way that Kirk Douglas and Kubrick tell that story. There wasn't any—Crassus doesn't become a dictator afterwards. He doesn't, you know, 
and put in some great prescription and started killing people. Um, the way that the battles are fought, the one battle we get, looks kind of ludicrous because you think, well, if it was this easy for Crassus to do it, the guy should have been beaten up long ago. Um, there's just so much wrong and bad about that movie besides you know, airplanes flying overhead and the guy with a watch on. Uh, but it gets to something you know, true about you know Roman slave economy and the desire for freedom and the the way that militaries and the desire for great generals was changing um, the um, Roman Republic. I mean, Crassus has a line where, you know, Sulla, Sulla took Mother Rome and insisted she become his wife, um, this sort of thing, which is just a perfect, you know, Roman epigram, which I'm probably misquoting, but that's generally the idea that, you know, the generals wanted to fuck their mom. Uh, that's what they were after more or less, and he wanted to do that, but he wanted to, create, he had to help create the emergency that he could put down. Uh, and there's just this, it's a beautifully told story. It's a little bit too long, and it bloats in places, but it's so well shot and so well acted, you know, with Tony Curtis and Laurence Olivier and Gene Simmons, the actress, not the rock star, uh, and uh, Kirk, Kirk Douglas. It's just... It is such a beautiful movie, even though it's wrong. And I probably put Kingdom of Heaven up there as well. Another movie that's got a lot of stuff wrong. And a lot of people don't like Kingdom of Heaven, but I really do like Kingdom of Heaven. Okay, uh, that's, actually, that's more interesting to me. Why do you like Kingdom of Heaven? I think that Bloom is better than people give him credit for. I think he was, you know, in the, the pretty boy phase then. So we were looking, kind of looking down on him and the way he was portraying that role. It's pretty boy night. Um, and it gets uh, some things about the Crusades wrong, and like many modern movies about the Crusades, tries to put a humanist spin on it, kind of like the Crusades or the medieval Vietnam, and we go over and realize, no, we're the real monsters, uh, <laughs> sort of thing, uh, which is, I understand, because we've always done that. I, mean, I don't understand people who criticize that in movies, because actually, we, we always, the, hist- the, the past is always a blank slate, and movies have always been us trying to understand our past. Through, which is why through the 50s and 60s, you had every ancient Rome movie having a really Christian theme. Of I mean, even uh, the Ten Commandments is really about communism and really about Jesus more than it's about Moses. Um, so that doesn't bother you that much. This is the way we do movies. So there's that humanist thing. But I just like, I like how the battles are portrayed. I like the relationships between the people. I love how the diplomacy seems to make sense within the time frame. I mean, I don't like Templars are evil, as Templars are always evil in the post-Dan Brown universe. But other than that, the, the diplomacy between the uh, knightly orders and Saladin and you know the king of Jerusalem and who is in charge and what are we fighting for and what is worth keeping. I really like that movie, uh, the director's version, uh, more than the theatrical. I'm, I'm, I know I'm in a minority there. How about you? Is there a movie that's a bit wrong that you like? Boy. Uh, there's, a, there's a few. Like Gettysburg's an interesting example because it's actually really right about yeah. a lot of things. But if you look at the details, like because they used a bunch of reenactors, it creates this alternate universe where everyone who fought the Civil War was a prosperous looking middle aged guy, uh, <laughs> you know, in a, in a too clean uniform. Right. Uh, like it's yes. there's a lot of you know there, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of fat, there, there, there's a lot there, of fat office workers in Lee's army. There, uh, there are there are a lot of old men fighting for Alabama. Yeah, and because because it's kind of this. Um, 
idealized vision of the war and be also i think because they couldn't figure out how to do special effects maybe on the scale they needed to there's a lot of people sort of theatrically clutching their chests when they've been shot and you know throwing themselves to the ground uh it's a it's a really shockingly bloodless uh civil war um but it's you know god help me it's 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 such a fantastic series of character sketches about the civil war and uh, you know why a lot of these people thought they were fighting uh that i i just kind of adore it um movies okay but what, what so, that, are, that are like really wrong i mean oh you, man like actual shame that yeah. that that i that i love it uh last samurai oh for christ's sake yeah i know i know it's dances with samurai Okay, you, now you've got to justify this one to me. You've got to explain what you like about The Last Samurai, besides Watanabe. Well, I mean, he's a big part of it. <laughs> okay. uh, like, honestly, there's, there's probably a better movie if you just cut out Tom Cruise and make it entirely about The Last Samurai Warlord. Uh, uh-huh. You've probably got a better movie if you do okay. that, although Hollywood have never, would have never made it. Sure. Um, uh, you know, I just find it it's such a beautifully shot film. Um and I think there's there there are there are good things in it, like the fact that um you know if if you look at if, if you look at the movie like you know Tom Cruise's character is a guy who's emerging from the Civil War, and yes, part of it's part of it's sort of this um you know loving portrait of of feudal Japan and the society that was that was rapidly vanishing uh, in the in the Meiji Restoration period, uh, but at, at the same time I, I do love how it also locates him. The world is the the way the, way, the entire world is basically turning into uh, you know a anyone who's going to succeed in the in the 20th century is going to turn themselves into a clone of the European imperial powers or the United States. It's basically going to clone themselves after these industrial societies. And the way we're introduced to it is, you know, they're, they're kind of actually brutal, savage societies. They're hypocritical. uh, They're, they're callous. And and I think there's, you know, if you're talking about things, things that are true, I I, I think that I do love that it starts with the sort of disillusioned Civil War soldier and, uh, you know, Indian War veteran. Uh, someone who really does understand the, the future that's being built and wants no part of it. I, I, find, that, I find that nice. I think it's such a beautifully shot film. Uh, and, and I do love how... I, I, I kind of love how it also gets at this... There's more to modernizing a society than just giving them the tools and giving them the tools you know i i think for me a lot of that movie is is sort of built around that first battle where tom cruise is sort of forced to take this uh you know first modern japanese army out into the field to fight the samurai and uh they just get absolutely massacred and it, the, the entire movie sort of becomes about the, the the these sort of shifts in mindset that have to happen among the different characters uh that that uh, you know i think actually makes for a really interesting story you know the fact that it's not just about that you can't just that you can't just adopt the technology of someone else you also have to adopt for better and for worse some of the mindset of the people who created the technology and i, and I kind of I, I kind of love the way that move, movie that that theme runs through that movie all right, all right. I'll let you have it. Um, the, I, I'm really bad. History movies are one of my like guilty pleasures. I often go on YouTube and Netflix and find like, you know, some of the worst crap. Like Gerard Butler as Attila the Hun. 
type well, stuff. Zulu is a movie I struggled mightily with. So I was watching it too. And yeah, we could probably. I mean, I've, I, I've often wanted to just do like a blog or YouTube criticism series of the good things and bad historical movies. Because often there are some little good little. There's some good tidbits here and there, but the ludicrous stuff. I mean, it, it doesn't get worse than Lee Majors as a Viking, but it can get worse. <laughs> Not that I recommend The Norseman to anybody, but... Uh, you have a question? I may have a question. Let's see what we've got. Um, this is probably... Here we go. Uh, what are... Here's a question about the podcast itself. What are some topics you perennially want to spend a full show talking about, but probably will never, ever get around to? Hmm. Well, I live in denial that we will never get around to a topic that we want to talk about. Oh, really? Well, I say that. I live in denial. Yeah. But there's an awful lot of things that just sort of sit around. There's a lot of board games, right? That's, yeah. a, that's an example. There's a lot of board games that I would love to do a deep dive on, but first I have to play them. Yeah. Uh, and usually also need to get at least one other person in the podcast to play it as well and refresh themselves. Uh, and, and so that, that becomes a problem. Like we've had, um, we've had Andy and abyss on our possible topics. I think we might've finally cut it, but we had, we had a game basically about, um, the, the, uh, narco war and narco wars down in South America. Um, we've had a game on our, that, that game, that game has been on our potential topic list for about three years now. Uh, and it just it just comes down to the fact it's an interesting game, but when are we going to be able to get together and play it? Uh, who among us has actually played it? So that's 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 a difficult topic. Uh, but people that's seem to tough. people seem to not realize just how hard this show is to do because so many of the games we talk about just take so goddamn long to play. Uh, which I'm not not that we're under any pressure um, to you know meet a review deadline or anything. Uh, well, but but, I, I but, but there are shows we, we want to do, and it's a, so much of our show is is just low logistics like that. Mm-hmm. Well, I th- you know, I mean, you know, honestly, like let's, I mean, we might as well address the elephant in the room here. Yeah. Like we used to never miss a week, and now we miss a week probably once every couple months. Yeah. Um, and I think part of that is when this show started, there was a huge market for reviews, right? Yeah. Like we were all like everyone on the show. And then when I joined the show, it was still basically the same case. Pretty much everyone on the show um, was kind of a working reviewer. Yeah. You know, Tom, Tom Chick was doing a lot of reviews. You were doing a lot of reviews. I was doing a lot of reviews. There were enough places that were interested in strategy that this could this was like an adjunct to our professions. That's yeah. no longer the case for anyone on this show. No. Um, and that's been something that I think I've certainly struggled with uh, because, you know, my freelance writing doesn't like every time I do a strategy game, I'm actually taking a loss on it. Uh, so that's that 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 may, it, it's it's it was a lot it's a lot easier to do the show when you're basically sort of stopping off on your way to you know another review assignment. Right. It's part of it's yeah. core part of your job. Uh, that's not really true for any of us. Uh, so yeah. that's gotten harder. And what gets lost then is a lot of the more ambitious games. You know, yeah. we we love dissecting sort of the. You know, a game like um, Ultimate General Gettysburg is perfect, right? Because we can all play that. After you played like six hours of it, even less, uh, you've got a pretty good handle on what's going there, and there's a lot to talk about. But where we really struggle is games like, you know, well, Distant Worlds is a game that's always requested. Why don't you guys spend more time? Like, why don't you guys take another look at Distant Worlds? uh, That that series is awesome. The Commander game from Matrix, their modern war game. 
Commander Modern Warfare, uh, the naval air naval thing. Oh well, yeah. Um, Blue Game. That's people have asked me why I've done this was a war game of the year. It's because I'm the fucking time to learn it, and I have to make sure that you guys have played it. Because I'm wait, not uh, sitting who, here. Who, who made it their war game of the year? Uh, uh, probably War Gamer. I don't know. <laughs> Well, okay. Uh, I look. I look. I've seen that game. There's like nothing about it that appeals to me. To, to be to be quite honest, um, it's. But it's a game uh, that's it's a kind of game we would command modern modern air naval war. Like, but it's yeah. a kind of it's the kind of game we would normally have done. We would have forced it, ourselves to do it. it. Would have been one of us would have been forced like would have been assigned it, and the rest of us would have rallied around it. Um, and we would have been able to sort of book the twenty now, hours I'm, of play. To I'm, do I'm it. not saying we're not going to do it, but if the game is a little bit late, if our, if our discussion is a little bit late, we've had we have a reason to play it. Generally, if something new has come up and it's worth revisiting, we finally have the time to play it. Like I really want to play this game um, once I figure out the interface. Uh, but yeah, it, 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 there are so many games. I mean, board games are a great example because we because we're not in the same place. I mean, you and Julian are close enough to play each other every f- couple of months or so. You guys get together and do that. Bruce and I used to do stuff online over Brett Spiel when he was in his residency, and I was doing freelance stuff. But I've got a real job, and he's got a real job. Now we're not making excuses for why the show is often late because this month was a weird, weird month. This was a crazy, crazy month. Um, for all of us. Uh, but I think, I mean, I, I would like to do a book show. But then, you know, what's, how can we recommend a book? And then if, like, if, you were, like, if Rob was to recommend a book, I couldn't then talk about that book with him because the chances of me having read it are very, very small. Yeah, I mean, the closest, I mean, it's this is why it's been good to do, try, like, when we try, when, when we did something like um, The Guns of August Month, and we're not quite done with it, but that's no. an example of both, the good and bad of what we're trying to do right now, right? In some ways, that catalyzed a lot of good discussion and topics, yep. which was great. Yep. But then as it started to come down to sort of analyzing some of the more ambitious games uh, in that space, the logistics started to get us again. Um, yeah, things like you know, so the, the old Guns of August game. We have uh, the new uh, game from Ajod. We have um, the making new Making History game, which is probably getting to its final form sometime in the next uh, couple of months. Yeah. Though it's in pretty advanced early access now. I think those are games we can probably play and then revisit them later in the year. Yeah. We'll, we just move Guns of August to November because I'm sure something happened in November, right? Well, yeah, I think November they uh, they were finally in their trench lines and yeah, trench warfare, baby. So Stay there we go. We'll, but yeah. there, there are always shows that we want to do. And like Rob said, we're in denial of that we'll never do them. But a lot of it is, you know, planning. Um, it's so rare to have Julian and Bruce's schedules line up. I, but then we had them together to talk about, you know, airplane war games. The problem notice I said nothing because I was mostly happy Julian and Bruce were in the same room talking about things I'd never heard of, which was pretty freaking awesome and happens should happen more often. Um, Scheduling is a problem, and we talk about really, really big hard games that we. So I, we occasionally get questions. I know I sometimes get questions either about Rob or about Bruce or about myself asking if we're tired of strategy games or if we're just not putting the energy in. That shows are often really, really good, but then sometimes they wonder if we're bored. Says, no, we're not bored. We're, we, we love the show. We want to keep it going. We have plans to help it keep going, which we'll talk about uh, in coming shows. Um, we're mostly just trapped by our topic, I would argue. Yeah, and by what the topic demands. Yeah. Uh, because well, well, I think we're all we're we're okay, sort of 
taking little breaks from strategy games from time to time. Yeah, the, the Last Express show was awesome, and you know, every one of the I best think, received we've ever done. Yeah, I, mean, I think every six months it helps, you know, move on and move outside yeah. of the hybrid games like Banner Saga. You know, try something a little bit in between. Right. I think those are good for us because it's important we engage with a wider type of game criticism as well and see where strategy games fit as they try to tell similar stories. Yeah. But don't take them as, sign, as a signal that we're moving away from our core mission, which is kind of what made us friends. Yeah, it's just the mission is harder to execute now. Um, and that's and that's a reality that we are trying to adjust to. And I, you know, I, I don't know what the solution is. Uh, you know, Troy, you alluded to it just now. I think one of the things we've been debating uh, from time to time is whether or not we, we shouldn't, you know, try to, I don't know, establish some sort of revenue stream for this, right? Like a Patreon right. or something it, like that. Because at that point... At that point, we can like I can take take less contract work and focus more on you know games like this. Um, but at the same time, like I'm in a weird I, you know I'm in a, like the only person who really probably deserves money out of this is uh, our producer Michael Hermes. Uh, yeah, but, but you know if we do do you know, go to go to the Patreon route or the GoFundMe route or whatever, what it would allow us uh, to do, and your listeners listening to this, so you can post in the thread about it, it would allow us to I mean Rob, your computer's falling apart. You, you don't have an iPad, so even mobile discussion, you're cut out. <laughs> um, uh, Michael does, you know, amazing, amazing work, often just reminding us we have a show due this week. Um, and, you know, the first, probably the first, any first thousand dollars we, we get goes like straight to his wallet. Um, and it will allow us to travel to conventions to check out games that, without an editor telling us to check them out. Uh, we could just go and go to board game conventions, go to strategy game conventions, go to Firaxicon, for example, yeah. which is happening. This sort of thing, you know, just even just even if not airfare, just a hotel room. It would allow us to do meetups, to talk with our fans in person. Um, but mostly it would just allow us to stay on top of things and give Rob an alternate revenue stream and uh, so that he doesn't have to fly to Detroit to cover esports that there, there were air quotes there you couldn't see them yeah um yeah i definitely wish uh yeah like you kill me that we you know we couldn't all be at gen con uh that would have been that would have been a great thing so it's these are all things we're we're, we're looking at and yes. trying to work out yeah so don't uh, think this is an absolutely certain thing but we would love to hear your feedback on if this is the type of thing you know you would support with you know a couple of dollars a month or something Yep. Uh, so we're going to work on how to how to make that happen. What uh, what makes what method makes the most sense for us? And if you have any suggestions, uh, and, and don't suggest just a donate button because people forget about those. We need something a little more, a little easier. Because we have a donate button, don't we? Uh, do we? I can't remember. <laughs> okay. See, there's a problem. Well, I have one on my blog, but that goes to me. And I don't write yeah. my blog anymore. Um, so it's my turn for a question, is it? Or do we have time for one uh, more? Or? Yeah, we have time for one more. Um, and I think it was actually my question. I think there might have been one more. Okay. Uh, all right. Uh, quick, quick hits here. Uh, Alex Kovic asks, the best video game AI moment you can remember, as in, no, you did not just do that. Oh, God. Um poof. I remember, I'm, oh God, I have so many of them, you know, many of them from like the older, older days of uh, computer games, um, you know, getting ganked in BBS games and this sort of stuff. But uh, I remember first playing Civilization. No, here's, 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 the, here's the best one. 
Harpoon. Playing the first Harpoon, new scenario kit at a friend's place. And he said, oh yeah, this is a great scenario, you should play it. And I, I'm being me, and he's telling me about it, I just skipped through the mission briefing, not a problem. I'm playing the Soviets, uh, cruising around the uh, Arabian Sea, the Indian Ocean, and I'm apparently looking for an American, American carrier group, I'm told. So I'm cruising around, airplanes are out, and then I get hit with a, hit with a, 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 a torpedo. Holy shit, what's that, what's that? So I'm sending all my... So I put my anti-sub systems in place, trying to find something, but boats start going down. Bang, 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 really fast. My friend was lying to me the entire time. There isn't an American carrier group. There's just a couple of Seawolf submarines hanging around, blowing me to bits. So why did you lie to me, Frank? Why the hell did you lie to me? That was not funny. But as far as in-game, first learning civilization, thinking I'm doing really, really well, finally crossed the ocean, land a musketeer happily in a new land. Oh, hello, Mr. Tank. I'm clearly very far behind. Uh, I think for me, things uh, things that really surprised me, um, probably the last, weirdly enough, the, the, probably the last really stunning AI moment for me came with, um, during the winter of wargaming when we were looking at a course in pocket. Okay. And the Such fir- a great game. The first time I was starting to achieve a breakthrough as the Soviets and the eastern part of the German salient was starting to collapse and I was starting to get some penetration and begin the encirclement. I was, I was really finally starting to cook. I was really happy. And then uh, suddenly the Germans show up with just huge armored formations, uh, just absolutely cream my forces, just completely drive me back uh, to the line of departure, cut off a few of my troops, just, just shatter those units uh, immediately. And then before I can get my reinforcements up and engage this uh, German counterattack, all the mobile units just completely boogie out. They just vanish back into the fog of war. No idea where they've gone. Mm -hmm. Um, And it wasn't just they attacked me and drove me back by a hex. It was they, like, the AI spotted a breakthrough, engaged the entire force uh, when it was most vulnerable, shattered it, chopped it into little pieces, drove me back as about as far as they could go safely, mm-hmm. and then and then disengaged, did not just sort of dig in uh, at the regained uh, terrain. They just backed out completely. Uh, and that's something that, like, a, a, a truly local counterattack like that, like, that's, that's more than just... Uh, it's more, that's I'm sorry. That's more than a local counterattack, right? It's not just driving you back by whatever hex you just gained, but it, it actually is it, it, like analyzing quite a bit more uh, than just your moment-to-moment position. Mm-hmm. And the AI is actually identifying sort of greater threats and greater opportunities than that. Uh, that left me stunned. So that uh, that's that's definitely probably the probably the most stunning thing I've had happen in a war game. Um, yeah, in terms of video game AI, if you're broadening it, uh, I don't know. The the Half Life Marines loom pretty large, uh, but you know that's that that that, that and the fear uh, that and the the bad guys in fear uh, were were pretty cool. Uh, Gormangus asks, in your personal opinion, is it better for games like for grand strategy games like AU4 uh, to focus on balancing scenarios that plausible historical outcomes are the norm, or balancing scenarios that any nation can achieve supremacy under player control? Uh, Paradox seems to have opted for a half mm-hmm. measure, making the great powers almost unassailably, unassailably stale, uh, and everyone else gets a tough road to hoe. 
recasting the fun versus realism argument is something actually resolvable. What are your, what are your feelings? This is not something I can say a lot about because our discussions currently are it's always a constant theme of discussion uh, at Paradox. But this is a business as a developer thing that I can't say particular. I can't answer this particularly. There are discussions in the forum uh, to this point, and I've been approached by people at Con saying, "Hey, you know, why is it so, why is it not as much fun to play miners anymore in these games? It used to be a lot of fun, but now it feels like they're just being canceled out in favor of the major powers." And what can I say as well? The developers have these discussions, they read the forums, they're aware of your concerns. They are trying to find a way to make everything interesting. And please, most people without, you know, having France useless. I will recommend, you know, you can turn off lucky nations. That often helps quite a bit. Um, The great powers get like a plus one luck bonus in some places. Uh, So turn that off and you'll have a little bit easier out to hoe. The uh, great powers won't get as many good monarchs, for example. Um, and that will help you somewhat. Um, but in general, this comes down to what, what is the purpose of your game? I mean, the fun versus realism thing is it's a false dichotomy. Um, you can have fun realism and you can have boring realism. I would argue, you know, real, real um, War in the East is a very realistic game and I love it, but I understand how most people will not find that a lot of fun. I don't find War in the Pacific fun at all. Uh, so it's not like there's only one way to go here. Uh, it's for, in grand strategy games, I, once again, they, they run this whole wide gamut, right? I mean, there's nothing realistic with civilization in the least, uh, but it's one of the best, you know, grand strategy games ever made. Um, so, and the paradox stuff I can't speak to particularly. I mean, Rob can give his opinion on it, and that's fine, what he thinks as a player and as, and as a uh, strategy critic um, I guess all I can say is oops um, we, we, are, we we know this is a concern um, the designers have their issues in mind and the art of war is going to give the new upcoming expansion will add a bunch of new tools um, you know once again many of them designed for major powers not exclusively them but also they're going to be a ton more minor powers uh, because especially uh, in Asia, because the map's being completely redone. As you can see in the developer diaries, you know, we've doubled the number of provinces in India, for example, which means we could have a whole lot more, uh, a much more fractured India. So it's not Vijayanagar versus the world, uh, as it turns out to be uh, in the game right now. Yeah, I actually tend to... So I like that you can turn Lucky Nations off. Uh, for instance, that's 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 kind of a nice measure uh, that that you can that you, that you can take uh, sort of get everyone playing with live fire. Uh, basically, it is not a bad idea. But honestly, I tend to like games that tend to that enforce a little bit of historicity uh, in art in outcomes um, because I think if you don't do that, at some point you're just making a slightly brainier power fantasy uh, in some ways. Like if you are making a game where like you know, the German offensive in 1942 can actually destroy the Soviet Union, um, then you're not making a game about the Eastern Front really anymore. You know what I mean? You're using it as a theme, but you're, you're, you're pretty far afield at, at that point. And, and so I just tend to be wary of the whole, like, well, you should be able to play anyone from any position and do something, because that takes you back into balanced territory. And I tend to believe a lot of games tend to be too balanced, uh, where everyone gets too good a shot, and there's sort of this obsession with getting, like, equal outcomes. Uh, I tend to think it's actually okay to have uh, a little bit more asymmetry. So I, I just... 
I actually, I think the fun, the, the whole, um, you know, anytime like fun, the privileging of fun over realism, uh, I think that gets, that gets abused a lot. I think it's often used as a way to duck uh, more interesting design issues. Uh, well, we could have done that, but it, it just wasn't fun for the player, so we ended up uh, scrapping that system. Uh, and and I, I tend not to. I, I tend to think that actually you're you're better off if you try to find a, a way to make that fun for the player, uh, while while retain you know right. staying true to the historical setup and a theme you've created. Yeah, I mean, I've had this discussion with my friend Deslock, who used to do RPG reviews. We talked about RPG uh, balancing. And he said, look, sometimes it's okay, it's okay to have a class that's really, really overpowered sometimes, especially if you have tons of different classes and tons of different options. We're talking about character customization. It should be okay for the player to, you know, build a super-duper hero if they can figure out how to do it among the maze of options, that that is a legitimate choice, a legitimate design choice. Not saying every class should be like that, but, you know, sometimes it's okay to have the game a little bit broken in places that there are some things that good to come out of that and i kind of like that france is overpowered in eu4 not overpowered that france is france in eu4 you know rich and strong and you know militarily impressive because then i know who the bad guy is and it's always france unless i'm playing france in which case it's burgundy screw you burgundy uh, so I think we'll leave the discussion off for there. Uh, we actually got through a lot of questions today, uh, which we is did, unusual and we have, for us. And we have many more. Uh, we'll save the ones. We'll bookmark the ones we've answered, and we will save the ones uh, that haven't been answered. I, I used a question, for example, that was submitted to our last show uh, this week. It was one I wanted to get to but couldn't. Um, thank you for sending in questions to our various means. We really like doing these shows. We should probably do them every few months, uh, every six months at least. Twice a year I think is good. Yeah. Um, great questions. Great audience. Uh, thanks for listening. Until next week, uh, say good night. Bye, all. Night, everybody. <laughs>